Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 40 through 44. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Oh, our dear Lord, we have such an important passage, such an important concept, so deep, there's no way we can possibly cover it today, but I ask that you would put wings on my words, that I would be concise and clear, that I would say exactly the words that you want me to say, that we would be able to establish what Luke is establishing, has been building up to uh, through this entire chapter to bring sort of to a culmination here and let us, dear Lord, understand how significant and how important these words of Jesus are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was having a conversation just the other evening that seems to be a conversation that I'm having more and more with different people. And, and that's the question of what on earth are we as Christians supposed to do with the craziness that is going on around us in our culture. I mean, it seems like things are just completely up down, upside down to a lot of us. Institutions that many of us have grown up respecting and expecting to be there all the time seem to be imploding upon themselves. Um, we see lawlessness in a country that was founded on laws and it was always considered to be a a virtue to be obedient to those laws. All of a sudden, Christianity has become an outlaw religion in a country that was founded upon its principles. I mean, words like hatred and division and segregation are being restated and repackaged and resold as love and unity and tolerance. Morality has completely turned upside down. Those of us who used to, be called, used to be called prudes and pious are now the most egregious of those who are immoral according to these new standards. And many people ask, what are we supposed to do? What's the church supposed to do? What are Christians supposed to do in this kind of an environment? Well, if you've ever asked that question, you're in luck. Although we don't believe in luck, you're in God's providence this morning. Because that's exactly what Dr. Luke is going to share with us. He is going to share with us the modus operandi, the methodology that literally turned the world upside down. And if we want to do the same thing, brothers and sisters, it's going to be all laid out for us right here. So pay attention. 
Now, we find ourselves in the same situation that I've been kind of lamenting over the last couple of weeks, and that is that this has been turning to such a rich chapter that we can't possibly go through all the context. But let me bring two things to your attention this morning to kind of get them in the forefront of your mind. First is that all-important quote that Jesus read earlier in the synagogue in Nazareth from Isaiah 61. Because that is sort of the governing um, thought that everything else is sort of flowing into. And in fact, when we get down to verse 43, you're going to see some of the words used and the same ideas expressed by Jesus. Now, I'm not going to really comment on it, but let me just read it from the way Jesus quotes it earlier in the 18th verse. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as I said, I'm not going to go in and comment on it too much. I just want you to have that in the forefront of your mind because that is what Jesus is going to to share with us when he says what's really important for him. Now, the second thing I want you to remember, and this is just because it is going to be brought out this morning again, and, and that's what's been going on this Sabbath day there in Capernaum, because there have been a, a, a multiple number of healings already, and then we're going to see that go deep into the night, the healing ministry of Christ. Now, it started in the synagogue where a man had a demon just simply cry out in surprised indignation when Jesus was teaching the word. And Jesus, of course, threw the demon out. But before he did, the demon says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And we're going to see that repeated multiple times in this evening. And then after that, when he went to Peter's house, we, of course, saw that Peter's mother-in-law was literally at the edge of death, probably with malaria, a deep fever. And Jesus healed her. But he healed her in that tender, loving, compassionate way. He hovered over her. And, of course, we remember that beautiful passage from Zephaniah where the Lord is rejoices over us with singing. And we kind of applied that to that. Now, once again, we are going to see multiple healings occur as we continue in our text. So if you'll just remember those two things, then it'll, what we're going to talk about will make a lot more sense this morning. So, with that said, let's jump right into our text, starting in the 40th verse, because, and again, I know that I kind of culminated the healings last week with this, sort of a punctuation mark, but it also goes with the passage, very importantly, that we are talking about the healing ministry of Jesus. So, look there in the 40th verse. Now, when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now, when Luke tells us that the sun was setting, the significance of that is that that's when the Sabbath would come to an end. Most of you know that the Hebrews didn't count their days like we do from midnight to midnight. They counted their days from sundown to sundown. So the Sabbath began Friday when the sun went down, and it was over Saturday when the sun goes down again. 
done. Now that means that the two healings we have already seen occurred on the Sabbath. But these are dutiful Jews who are uh, 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 applying the, the lessons of Scripture, but probably more significantly, the lessons of the scribes and Pharisees that had made the, uh, tremendous burdens around the Sabbath. So they're going to wait until the Sabbath is over. But once the sun goes down, sort of an amazing scene begins to occur there in the streets of Capernaum. And people start coming out of their houses. And it's a very bedraggled group because people that you normally wouldn't see out on the street, people who are in sick beds and, and can't get up, they're being carried out on cots or are supported by a couple of people or sometimes just carried in blankets or whatever, but they are coming out to make their way to Peter's house so that they can be healed by the healer. Because you see, it's one thing to hear about Jesus afar off. You know, he's done all these amazing things in Jerusalem. And over there in Cana, he also did something amazing. And we've heard all these stories, but now, right here in this town, twice he has done miraculous healings. And so people begin to make their way to Peter's house, hoping for the touch of the healer. Now, once they get there, Mark tells us the whole town is there virtually. Once they get there outside the door, then Jesus begins one by one to, to heal them. I, I don't want you to miss that. Let me make sure that I read it for you. I'm going to read it again. And, 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 and they brought various diseases to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and heal them. Now I'm told that that the laying on of hands for healing is something that Jesus is introducing. Nowhere in the Old Testament or even in the rabbinic writings do we find this the, the laying on of hands to be something that's involved with healing. It's usually anointing of a priest or a prophet or a king or something like that, some kind of religious thing. But Jesus uses it in the process of healing. And the reason I think he does that is the same reason he hovered over Peter's mother-in-law and took her by the hand and lifted her up. It is a personalized healing. After all, we know that Jesus had the power. He could have been you know, inside the house and, hey, there's a bunch of people who outside who need to be healed. He could have said, okay, they're all healed, boom. And they would all be healed. But you see, Jesus is not, and Luke is already beginning to tell us, he's not just there for physical healing. It's not just there for the physical comfort of people that they would not suffer. Now, of course, Jesus was greatly compassionate, and it bothered him that people suffered. But that's not the focus of his ministry. And so, therefore, it needed to be personal. The Messiah spent time with each one of these people and laid his hands hands upon them and healed their outward infirmities, but he is more interested in their souls, what's going on on the inside of them. And so people are being healed. Now, there's something else. I don't have time to go into this, but I just want you to see it in passing. I want you to notice that they came to Jesus with 
All kinds of diseases, various diseases. Later on, we're going to see him cast out demons. And and I imagine that there are disabilities, things that simply could not be healed in any other way unless God works a miracle. And we are told that Jesus healed them all. You see, that's the way that Jesus heals people. He heals them all, heals them instantly, and he heals them completely. So different from the so-called modern faith healers. I don't even call them faith healers because they don't heal anybody. They're false healers. And, and, and if, if you walk into one of those shows with a particular ailment, like, like people like Joni Erickson Tana, and she tells the story of when right after she had that accident and she was uh, paraplegic in a, in a wheelchair and they wheeled her into a faith healer and as soon as they wheeled her in, they grabbed her and wheeled her out. Put her in a back room to where she, because she was too sick. She, she had a real infirmity and they didn't want her up on the stage clogging things up. That's not the way Jesus healed, folks. Jesus healed every infirmity, every disability, every disease because he wielded the power of God. He really wielded the power of God. Well, anyway, he heals the sick, but then notice in the next verse. 41st verse, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, notice this. Notice that there are many demons that are being brought out. And there seems to be at times when the Spirit of God is really at work, like big times in redemptive history, or even times when great revivals are going on, it appears that, that, that evil just kind of raises its ugly head. And so certainly during the ministry of Jesus, we saw a, a heightened level of demonic activity. And even after that, with the establishment of the church, we saw that, that level of demonic activity. So many of these demons were being cast out by Jesus. Now, a couple of things I want you to realize. Okay, First of all, if you were here last week, or was it the week before? I can't remember. One time we talked about, oh, it was last week. We talked about the fact that Jesus rebuked Peter's mother-in-law's fever and how the skeptical scholars look at that and they say, oh, poor, poor Luke, you know, he's so superstitious. He thinks that, you know, all, all sickness was just demon possession. And so that's the reason he rebuked him. But that's so obviously not true. It is so obvious that Luke knows the difference between infirmities and demon possession because he's separated the two in the way that Jesus dealt with them. And so also notice that when these demons were cast out of people, quite a few of them, well, they, they, they came out doing the same thing the first demon did. He, he says, you know, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Well, the same thing is happening here. They are attesting or affirming or proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus rebukes them and will not allow them to speak. We talked about that word rebuke last week, how strong it is, how it's a warning to them of consequences of those particular actions. And Jesus, once again, would not let these demons say anything. 
I got in trouble actually a couple of weeks ago when I, I, I said that uh, Jesus told the demons to shut up. Um, when I got home, my wife took me to task and says, we don't use those words. We teach our youngsters not to use shut up. And here you are putting them in the mouth of Jesus. You know, you're not supposed to say that. Well, I'm sorry. I was just trying to think of a strong, emphatic way that Jesus told these demons not to speak. So I take it back. I don't want those words to be in the mouth of Jesus. But regardless, it was a very emphatic way for him to silence the demons. Now, when we talked about that, we talked about a couple of reasons for that. Why did Jesus silence these demons? Well, the first reason was back in the synagogue in Capernaum. He's in the middle of teaching and preaching the word of God. And this demon has the audacity to interrupt the preaching of the word of God. That's how important the preaching of the word is in this, uh, as, as Luke introduces that. But that particular reason doesn't apply here other than we are really going to be looking at the importance of that preaching. But the second one we looked at does apply here. And that is that Jesus does not need the demons of hell to be attesting who he is. You know, he's interested in people knowing that he's the son of God, that he's the holy one of God. But he doesn't need the filthy, wicked, evil mouths of the demons of hell to be bringing that out. And so he silenced them. Because he would rather we know by the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of his word, listening to him, that we would understand who he was. But I think there's another reason that is brought out here that is kind of implicit in what, the way Luke words this. And that is what sometimes is known as the messianic secret. Jesus was on a time schedule, and he knew that there was such messianic fever amongst the people that if they began to think that he was the Messiah, that it would escalate things, and he had much to do before he goes to the cross. You may remember in John 6 when Jesus, just after he fed the 5,000 people, uh, the people said, oh, this is the prophet that Moses talked about. This, this is the Messiah. And they were, they were talking about taking him to Jerusalem by force and making him be king. And so damaging was that thought process that Jesus took his disciples, put them on a boat, and sent them out into the face of a major storm. He'd rather them face that storm than listen to that at this particular point in time. Of course, Jesus went up on the mountain and prayed, which is kind of typically what he did. So that's one of the reasons that he, he is telling the de- demons to be quiet. And there's one last reason that I want to share with you because I think that this kind of plays into where we're going. And that is that when people start expecting supernatural things, when, when they start expecting something external like that, they tend not to listen to the message. And we're going to hear how important the message is. It's central to what Jesus came to do. And too many miracles, too many demon exorcisms, people are just going to come. Of course, this is what happened anyway. But people are going to just start coming so that they can see those miracles and be wowed. And that was not something that Jesus wanted. And so he told the demons to be quiet because they knew who he was. Well, that's kind of what happens for the rest of that evening. And now we're going to turn our attention 
to the culmination of, of, of what Jesus is there about. And, and, and let me just back up a wee bit before I go into this next section, these next verses, which are so critical in the understanding of the missional purpose of Jesus Christ, that I, I just want to kind of back up and, and, and make a point first. So that it just kind of is the overview. I'm going to talk about the purpose of Jesus, why he came, you know, what his job was, what his mission was when he was here. But that's not the simplest um, concept because Jesus on multiple occasions says, I came for this or I came for that. So if, if I, for instance, tell you emphatically, which is what Jesus is going to say, I came for this to, to preach the, the good news, well, I'm not leaving out the fact that he came to die on the cross as the Lamb of God to forgive the sins of those who trust in him. It's just that that's not the focus here. In fact, later on, and and I'm not going to have time to go into it like I would like to, but we can just use three metaphors about Jesus and really sort of capture the different ways that he expressed his purpose. And that's the good shepherd who came to seek and find and save the lost. That is the Lamb of God who came to die on the cross to pay for his sins. And that is, as Brother Michael read earlier, the Lion of Judah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who reigns even now from heaven. So all of those were the reasons that Jesus came. We're only going to look at one of them this morning. And, and, and that is a two-pronged purpose. And you need to get this, folks, if you're going to understand what Luke is saying. It's two-pronged. On the one hand, Jesus came so that he could heal. He worked miracles. He was compassionate. He loved the people and he wanted to, to alleviate their suffering. But that's not the main reason that he came. That is to authenticate the real reason that he came, which is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And therefore, the preaching remains the central aspect of Jesus' ministry. And with that in mind, let's kind of look at it. Let me back it up by what the text said. Look there in the 42nd verse. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leading. Now, if all we were doing was reading Luke, we, we might get the impression that Jesus healed people all night long. And he was still doing the healing when the sun came up, you know, because when it was day, that's when he's going to slip away. Mark gives us a little bit of a different perspective on this when he says, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. So at least we see that Jesus got some sleep that night. Probably not much. He probably was healing till the wee hours of the morning, got a couple hours of sleep, and he gets up before dawn and slips out of the house, and he goes to a desolate place. Now, all that means is that it's a place without people. It's a place of solitude. And why did he go to a place of solitude Luke doesn't really tell us, but once again, Mark does. He went to the desolate place so that he could pray to his father. Jesus often did that. He would spend all night praying to his father. He reconnected with his father. And, and, and I can't help but think 
that it, it, it has something to do with his spiritual exhaustion when, when he healed people the way that he had done the night before. Do you remember that story of the woman with the flow of blood? Do you remember that and the way it's told to us in Luke where she crept up behind Jesus as he walked through the crowd and touched his cloak? And this is what Luke tells us, Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that the power has gone out from me. Well, if one woman touching him in a crowd for healing makes him feel it, he, he, in some way, I can't tell you how, but in some way there was a, there, there was a reduction or a, a transfer of power. Can you imagine how he must feel after healing people all night? Because after all, we, we, we hear that the whole town was outside Peter's house. So, so Jesus slips away, okay? Now, what we read next is that the people sought him. You know I like to visualize these things. So let's visualize this, all right? Um, people go home. Jesus is healing late at night. Probably some people in that word-of-mouth community didn't believe or didn't bring their loved ones out. But now they heard that everyone in town's getting healed. So early the next morning, they're right back knocking on Peter's door, okay? There's this crowd that gathers outside. Now, I know that this is somewhat unfamiliar to us, uh, not to all of us, because some of you come from uh, these kinds of cultures. But, you know, we have dozens of hospitals around us and doctors galore, and, and, and we have medical clinics, and we have drugstores, and in pretty much anything that that causes us to suffer, we can at least in a short period of time take care of. Not so in many countries, including Haiti. And, and I know that Pastor Caleb understands this, so does uh, me too. I mean, you, you have seen the sort of desperate need that people had. We held a, um, a medical clinic one time in a little village called um, La Belmera. Many of you have been there actually with us. And we were expecting, you know, not, not a big, huge crowd. We got there in the morning, and there were over 300 people in line, many of whom had been there all night long because they were desperate. And there was every kind of illness, uh, of, of disability, of sickness that you could imagine. And, and they were desperate for some kind of relief from their suffering. Um, we, another occasion, we were in a place called Bernard, and we were actually going to build a church. That was our project. We, we, we didn't have a medical clinic planned, but we got there, and there were 60 to 70 people waiting for us who somehow had got the message that we were going to have a medical clinic, and we didn't have a nurse, we didn't have any medicine, we didn't have anything, and let me tell you something, I thought we were going to have a riot, but because they were expectant and they were suffering and they needed relief from that suffering. And so that's the way I see this crowd outside Peter's house. You know, they're here to see Jesus and they're here because they have needs and they're here in order to get healed. And they knock on the door and Peter comes out and he says, whoops, <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus isn't here. Now, interesting little tidbit we pick up from Mark. Because Mark doesn't tell us that this crowd went searching for Jesus. Mark tells us that it was Peter and the disciples who went searching for Jesus and found him. 
So maybe what happened is Peter looked at the crowd and said, well, he's not here, but come on, let's go find him. And he leads them um, to the solitary place where Jesus is praying to his father. So all of a sudden, all these people come up and, and, and they have a need. They want Jesus to stay with them. They want to detain him. Brothers and sisters, I don't have time to go into this this morning, but please, there, there's a sermon right here that, that I could preach because the forces of evil have been trying to derail the true ministry of Christ all the way through this. Going back to the beginning of this chapter with the devil in the desert trying to get Jesus to be a Messiah who didn't go to the cross. And then going to the synagogue at um, his hometown of Nazareth. And once he wouldn't do miracles and spoke of judgment coming upon the people, what did they try to do? To derail his ministry by murdering him, by throwing him off a cliff. And then when he's throwing the demons out, whether it's the synagogue or whether it's outside Peter's house, they're coming out and they're saying, you're the Son of God, in a sense, derailing his ministry by cheapening the statement of who he is. And now these people are grabbing onto Jesus and saying, no, Jesus, I'm not going to let you go. I have needs and I need you to fulfill my needs. I am the one I'm interested in. This is a me religion and I want you to stay. I don't want you to go and do what you're called to do. I want you to stay here and take care of me. Sound familiar? Probably typifies most of modern evangelicalism. It's a me religion. But anyway, Jesus is not going to have anything to do with it because he came for a different reason and he's going to express that reason in this 43rd verse. Probably one of the most important verses that we're running against so far as far as establishing for us the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's read it. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Okay, in the back of our heads, we have all this healing that's been going on. We have all these miracles that he's been working, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say that I have come so that I can work miracles. I have come to make people happy. I have come to alleviate their suffering. He loved to do it. He was a compassionate man, but that's not why he says he came. I came because I must preach. That is emphatic, brothers and sisters. That is a, uh, if you go into the Greek, it, that's not a question. That's not an option. That's not a sideline. I'm going to preach as I go along. No, I am under compulsion to preach. I must preach. It's like Paul says, woe be unto me if I do not preach the gospel. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. My focus, my desire, my need, that which I am under compulsion to the Father to do is to preach. Oh, how far we have fallen from the tree. How far we have fallen away from the very thing that Jesus says is the reason that he came. Because preaching is the very thing that we have eliminated from our worship services. Sermons, uh, sermons need to be, first of all, short. That counts me out. 
Then they need to be simple. That also counts me out. Then they have to have no real theological import. They don't need to be serious. I don't want to be convicted. I don't want to think about or be confronted with my sins. I want a nice little diatribe to make me feel better so I can go home and make it through my week. You know, that's what I need. I need something that's going to uplift me and encourage me. And the last thing in the world I need is someone who is going to convict me about the work of the kingdom of heaven. But that's exactly what Jesus did, you see. Jesus preached. Later on, when we see the disciples and the apostles in Acts, they preached. Preaching is the central aspect. It is still the most important thing that we do in a worship service. The expositional preaching of the word of God. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher. It is to preach the word of God. And that is exactly what we have cut out of modern Christianity or modern Christendom. Well, that's not what Jesus did at all. First thing he said, I must preach. He says, now I must preach the good news. Now, I really shouldn't separate the word preach from good news like I did. I wanted to make a point about preaching. But actually, the underlying Greek word is one word for both. Euangelizo is the word. It's the word from which we get our word evangelize. And it means to preach the good news, to preach the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to preach. Now, you should ask yourself a question here. What is the good news? What kind of good news is Jesus talking about? At this point in his ministry, because most of us, what do we think about when we think about the good news, when we think about the gospel? We think about what Jesus did on the cross, the sacrificial substitutional atonement of Jesus Christ, the way he died, the way he was resurrected, the way he ascended, our, our place that he's prepared for us in heaven. All of that is part of the gospel, but none of that's happened yet. So when Jesus says, I must preach the good news, what good news is he talking about? The good news of the kingdom of God. That's what he's preaching. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Matthew puts it this way. Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark puts it this way. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness, there we go. I'm up against a brick wall. Because the kingdom of God is a huge topic. I I was going to at least try to brush over it, to give you an overview, to at least talk a little bit about it this morning, but it's about 30 minutes worth, and it's a little bit technical. So I decided what I'm going to do is I'm just going to push the idea of the kingdom of God to the after church, and we're going to talk about it then a little bit more fully. But I need to at least give you an idea of what the kingdom of God is. Because that's the good news that Jesus came to preach. I came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, first of all, I, I, I don't see a very, there's a little bit. But I don't see a lot of difference between Mark and Luke's kingdom of God and Matthew's kingdom of heaven. There are some people that want to push that far apart. Pretty much they're synonymous, a little bit of difference. The kingdom of God really refers more to the sovereignty of God in that kingdom, kingdom of heaven, more about the place that the kingdom is from. 
But, but the, the idea of the kingdom, that is the idea that we, we want to establish. Now, let me see if I can give you just a real quick primer. A kingdom basically has three parts. If you think about what a kingdom is, any kingdom. A kingdom needs a king, first of all, someone who is sovereign over that kingdom. Someone have absolute, complete authority over everything within that kingdom. Absolute, sovereign will. Secondly, you have a domain. You have an area over which that king is sovereign. Usually in earthly kingdoms, that's geographic in nature. In the heavenly kingdom, it's more spatial, and it has to do with people as well. But then thirdly, the kingdom must have subjects. You have to have people who um, are under the authority of the king, who, who are subjected and submissive to that king. Now, in the kingdom of God, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Because, after all, God is the unquestioned, sovereign, authoritative king of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we forget that. Let us never forget that. This is a kingdom in which there is only one sovereign, only one king, only one authoritative being, and that is God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is king over this kingdom. Secondly, the dominion of the kingdom, that also is pretty easy. Because all things that were created have been created by God. And so, therefore, all things that have been created are under his dominion, right? The entire universe, the entire dimensions, whether it's heaven or hell or any place, it all falls under the sovereign dominion and authority of God. And thirdly, boy, this is where it gets interesting. And this is where it would take so much time, and I just don't have time this morning to do it. The subjects. Now, in one sense, everyone is a subject of God's kingdom. But going all the way back to the passage that Brother Michael read us earlier, where Jacob gives the scepter to Judah, it's established that he's going to be the king. Now, that kingdom's not going to come about until after the exodus and after they take the promise line back and after David sits on the throne and all of a sudden now you have the fulfillment of that prophecy. But by the time of Jesus, and boy, did I just skip a whole bunch. By the time of Jesus, the people in the kingdom are horribly corrupt except for just a few people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of them, the zealots, they have completely um, corrupted the, the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh, and therefore the understanding of the kingdom. And so when Jesus says that repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon you, he's saying I'm bringing a new kingdom, but in a sense it's not new, it's old, it's just the beginning of the kingdom that was, but it's the right kingdom. Now, this is the new wine that won't go into old wineskins. It's a different kind of a kingdom, but let me just explain something real quickly. Same God, same king, no new king, same, same, same God as king overall. He's the authoritative one, immutable, he never changes. Same dominion. <laughs> There's nothing been added or removed, so it's the same dominion. What's the difference that makes this kingdom so different? Subjects people, you and me, 
Because you see, instead of being recalcitrant, stiff-necked, rebellious people, and instead of worshiping other gods and turning away from our God and worshiping Him one way and then completely losing our, our salvation and completely losing our, our desire to worship Him, we're not saved by our own merit. We're saved because Jesus died on the cross and chose to pull us out of the sewer and exalt us with His name. That's the reason we're saved. And so therefore, no one can take us out of the hand of Jesus. And so therefore... Therefore, the subjects are different. The subjects have purified hearts. The subjects are no longer at enmity with God. They love God. They desire to do His will. It's a whole different world. We have a kingdom on earth that reflects in to a degree, and we're still fallen, but it reflects to a degree the kingdom of heaven wrapped in the righteousness of the one who was truly righteous. New subjects and a new kingdom. Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the rest of these villages, the other towns and villages that are here. And Jesus expresses something for us that is hugely significant at this particular time in history. Jesus expresses for us the modus operandi of the kingdom and how he and a group of ragtag fishermen are going to change the world and turn it upside down. Through a process that, I'll explain it later, but we're going to call apostling. The apostling, the work of kingdom apostling. That's the way he turned things upside down. Because Jesus says, this is missional, all right? In other words, I didn't come just to heal the sick here in Capernaum. I, I came so that I could preach the good news of the gospel to Every single town in Hamlet. And after I'm gone and my disciples take over, they're going to take this into the far reaches of this world. Every nation, every people, every language, every race, every ethnicity. They are going to be pulled into my sheepfold because they're all my sheep. And they are united in me. You see, that's what the world doesn't understand about Christians. All the things that divide other people and other groups are missing in us because we have been bound together by the power and the love of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the kingdom is a kingdom that comes from every time slot, every country, every place, and yet all fit together perfectly because we are all in Christ. That's what Jesus says he must do. And then he makes this last statement. (laughs) He says... For I was sent for this purpose. Or I was sent for this purpose. What is this? What is the purpose, he says? Okay, I've just been healing. I've healed everybody in the town of Capernaum virtually. I've been healing and working miracles and everything. Did he say it was for the miracles and the healings that I came? For that purpose, to make people feel better, to make their lives easier, to give them health, wealth, and prosperity. Was that what he said? No. He said, I have come for this. What is this? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to every town and village. That's the this. And that is the purpose for which he came. 
Now, once again, as I said, there are other purposes. I mean, you're going to pick them up in Scripture. I'm going to talk about them in the after church. We're not going to talk about them right now. But we have Jesus, again, as I said earlier, we have him as the good shepherd, the one who came to search for and find the lost. We have him as the Lamb of God who's going to go to the cross, who's going to die on the cross so that we might be saved from our sins, forgiven for those sins, and wrapped in his righteousness so that we can have relationship with the Holy God. Then he's the... The Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord of the universe. Either in worship or in judgment, every knee will bow. He's all those things. But here he says, my purpose is for the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. Backing up, he says, for this reason, I was sent. That's the word, okay? Underneath that word, it's a, it's a verb, and the Greek word underneath it is apostello, and it's the word from which we get the noun, apostle. And apostello simply means to send. And so an apostle is simply a sent one. And so Jesus is the first, the greatest, the largest capital A apostle that we could possibly draw because he was sent from heaven. Who sent him? God. I know it's confusing because Jesus is a God-man, but God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sent Jesus with this message. You go down and you preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He was an apostle but we're going to talk about him as an apostler. And I'll explain the reason where that word came from in a moment. And he is going to engage in a methodology that we call apostling. And again, I'll explain where that word came from. But let me explain what I mean by apostling. This is, this is vital. Okay, this is what, what Luke has been trying to explain to us. And I know that some of you know this. I've used this analogy many times, so please just be patient because I know there are people here that have not heard this. The best way that I can explain apostling in the way that we are seeing it is to use a boxing metaphor. Okay? You may know how to box. Well, I grew up in Tennessee, and in Tennessee, all young boys somewhere along the line got, got, got some boxing gloves for Christmas and learned how to box. And so I, 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 I got some gloves the same time my older brother got some gloves, and we used to box at each other, and I was always the one that would end up on the floor because I didn't know how to box, man. You know, I'm, I'm flailing, you know. My arms are going every which way. I'm just trying to hit him and kill him if I possibly could. But he knew how to box. He, he knew that there was a system to it. Now, there's different things that boxers do, but one of the ways that a boxer, because it's the knockout punch you want, right? You want your opponent on the floor. And so there's this sort of a method that he does. You, you lead with your left, okay? And then you come back with the knockout punch with your right. Now, when you lead with your left, what it does is it kind of gets your opponent off guard. Either he's going he's gonna to try to dodge it, either you're going to connect, or in some way you get him off his feet. And while he's focusing on your left hand, you come by with the right hand, and wow, you knock him flat. That's the one-two punch of boxing, and that's exactly what apostling is. You see, that's the, that's the healing ministry of Jesus. That, that's the left, all right? 
That's the leading. When Jesus heals and throws out that demon in the, in, in the synagogue of Capernaum, he's leading with his left. When he goes to Peter's house and he, and, and he heals the mother-in-law, he's leading with his left. When he goes that night and way into the early morning, he keeps on healing people and casting out demons. He's leading with his left. But that's not the purpose of his ministry. That is to authenticate it. That is to authorize who he is. After all, if we go back to that 18th verse, when Jesus read from Isaiah, and it's a clear messianic verse, and afterwards he sits down and looks at everybody, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the Messiah. I can say that. I could say I was the Messiah. It would be ludicrous, but I could say that. You've got to prove it some way. How do you authenticate the person who claims to be the Son of God? What can you do? How can you authenticate the message that he brought? Believe in me and you will be saved. You do it through miraculous healings and miracles that only God can do. That authenticates Jesus. So he leads with his left. But it's the proclamation of the kingdom of God. It is the message. It's the preaching of the kingdom of God and the good news that is the knockout punch and that is what he came to do to save people and the way he saves people yeah he's going to go to the cross he's going to be the sacrifice that's another purpose but the way he saves them is by sharing and preaching the word of God the very thing we've cut out of our churches today that's apostling okay that's the idea of what apostling is. And, and that is what Luke is showing us. That's what Matthew shows us in his fourth chapter. To a degree, it's what John shows us in his prologue in the first chapter. He's setting the scene for us for the rest of the ministry that Jesus is doing. And he is letting us know that as important as healing is, it's not everything. That he came to preach. And he came to preach good news. Great news to those who put their faith in him. Terrible news to the deacons. <laughs> Sorry, deacons. I, 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 I just slipped out. That was not a Freudian slip. Uh, the demons, okay? Uh, bad news for the demons. Oh, my goodness. I'll never live that one down. Ah, wow. You know, that's what I get for trying to have a dramatic, uh, you know, play on words. Well, anyway. Then we see Jesus in the last verse here, the 42nd. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus sets about the work of kingdom apostling. And that's what he's doing. Don't get fooled by the synagogues of Judea. We normally think of Judea being the southern part uh, of Israel. But here, it just means Israel as a whole. And then later on, of course, we're going to see his disciples do the same thing. So, let's step back a little bit from this. I want to answer the question that we asked at the beginning of this, and I want to bring this home to you and to me and, and to the church. How does this relate to us, and, and, and how do we go about apostling? Well, first of all, let me explain the next stage in this, because Jesus, after all, is the apostle from heaven. But then there were other apostles. Now, these were men, according to Acts 1, who were sent 
by Jesus himself. These were men that Jesus gave special powers, amazing miracles, and sent them into the world to do exactly what he had done. Peter and John are walking into the temple in Acts 3. There's a man who's been lame from birth. The man asked them for a handout. Famously, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. Stand up and walk. And so the man starts jumping around like a calf in spring. And, you know, what did, what did Peter and John do? He says, hey, look at us, man. We just healed this guy, okay? What a great ministry. We wield the power of God. We're going home now. Come on and join our church because you'll see a lot more of this. Is that what they did? No. They, after they said their prayers, they went over to the porticos of Solomon. And what did he do? He preached the word. What did he do at Pentecost? He preached the word. They came and arrested him, took him before the Sanhedrin, the same people who convicted Jesus and sent him to the cross. What did he do? He preached the word to the Sanhedrin. The very thing that we've stopped doing in our churches. That's all you're going to see. That's where you get the great sermons, the preaching of the word of God. Yes, Peter had great miracles. We're all, with the part we're in right now in the fifth chapter is, you know, people are bringing their cots out into the street just to get in Peter's shadow, hoping that that will, that will uh, heal them. There was great miracles being done by Peter's. And, and, and they still, uh, the one-two punch is the, the, the delivery of the proclamation of the kingdom. Now, they have something different that Jesus didn't actually have that now is added as part of the gospel. Because we have Jesus has gone to the cross. Jesus has been the sacrificial substitutionary atonement. Jesus has paid for our sins. We are forgiven if you trust and believe in him. You are wrapped in his righteousness. Jesus went to the grave. He's been resurrected and he's ascended to heaven where he is right now. All of that became part of their preaching, but it is still the basic same modus operandi to preach the word of God. That's apostling. But you see, if that's the only, if that was totally where it ended, then I wouldn't need a special word. Because those are both apostles. Jesus is the apostle from heaven. These other guys are the apostles Jesus sent. But then there's us. There's you and there's me. And all of us have been given the same commission that the apostles did. Jesus told them, go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have shared with you, and lo, I am with you to the very end of the world. Later on in the first chapter of Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, that's us. We're the ends of the earth. We're the ones he's talking about. After he was raised from the dead, he told his disciples, as the Father has sent me, apostello, same word, now I send you. So each and every one of us, if you're a Christian, you have a commission to apostle. <laughs> and you say, wait a minute, okay, I, I, I get the, the knockout punch. I got the gospel down. I understand it. I know exactly what I'm supposed to say, but, but where's my leading with the left? You see? Where's my miracles? Where, where's, where am I going to get these people to authenticate and listen to me and pay attention to the gospel? Because after all, if you don't have leading with your left, you're just floundering like this, you know? And you're not going to be able to make the point. So therefore, so many people go out and they try to manufacture miracles. 
They try to make them up. They try to act like, okay, we're going to have these external physical miracles. And if you come to to support my ministry, you're going to see all kinds of great things. Don't you get it? Don't you realize what our left is? Jesus said it himself. He said, what's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for you to pick up your bed and walk? But just so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your bed and walk. Only Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus wields the power for forgiveness and salvation and redemption. And so the miracle that we have is not some cheap smoke and mirror miracle that we, that we manufacture from the outside. You are the miracle. You are so much more powerful as far as the miracle is concerned. I'm not talking about you being powerful. I'm talking about the miracle that has occurred in you. Because it is one thing to heal the body. It is another thing to take someone who is dead in their trespasses and sin, destined to hell and deserving of that punishment, to lift them out of the sewer, to exalt them, to take their old heart out, put a new heart in, and give them the glory and the presence of Christ in that new life. You are born again. You are a new creation in Christ. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing miracle. That's your left, folks. And, and don't get me wrong. This isn't some new agey thing. You know, oh, there's a little bit of spark of God and divinity in you. It is what God has done in your heart. It is what God has accomplished in you. That's the miracle. That's the modern day miracle. And sometimes it is magnified a hundred thousand fold because there's revivals and people get saved all over the place. That's the modern day miracle. But let me tell you something. Let me, oh gosh, you just, you got, you see how important this is. Man, if, if there's no difference between you and the rest of the rats in the sewer, what kind of miracle do you have to present? And and that seems to be the desire of the church today, to try to look as much like the fallen world as we can so we don't make anyone uncomfortable. Well, that is not going to bring anyone out of darkness. It is your piety. It is your righteousness. It is the light of Christ in your heart. And that's the reason Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the city on a hill. And don't hide your light under a basket. Now, that might just mean being afraid to share the gospel, but it also means to cover yourself in the slime and the muck and the sinfulness of this world so that no one can see your light. You're a lighthouse standing on the shore, and if your mirrors are so completely covered with muck and mud, you're not going to lead anyone into safe harbor. And so you're left, brothers and sisters, is what Christ has done in your life. It is your newborn self, your redeemed self, your desire to follow him, the personal piety and righteousness that Christ has wrapped you in. It doesn't mean you're not sinful and you don't make mistakes. We all do. But that's your left. People looking at you and saying something happened to that person. I don't know what it was. He was a drunk yesterday. He's sober now. Yesterday he was a womanizer and today he's chased. Yesterday she was a prostitute and now she's watching after everything she does in love with God and living a righteous life. Something has happened to that person. And if you're not showing it, you're not leading with your left. But then you've got this, right? You need to know the gospel, folks, because that is your right. That's the knockout punch. 
You lead with the left, which is the life that you lead. And then you come through with that right, that right knockout punch, which is to tell people about Jesus Christ. I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with it. It's all Jesus. He saves. You need to know this guy. You need to know the Son of God because he and he alone has the ability to forgive sins. Why don't you let me tell you about it? That's the right. And that's the knockout punch. So I want to go back to the question that I started this message out with. You look around you at the world that you live in and you don't know what to do. You think that everything is caving in and you don't know which direction to turn. You don't know what you can do. You feel like you've got to do something. So what? You're just going to get angry because it all makes you mad. There's a righteous anger when you see the kind of immorality that is paraded in front of us. What are we supposed to do about it? Maybe we're supposed to pick up signs and go picket or, or, or join marches. Maybe what we're supposed to do is get in politics and try to change it by changing political situations. Well, maybe we're just supposed to get violent and, and be vigilantes. No, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be in politics. The only thing I just said that you don't want to do is to be a vigilante. But that's, that's not going to change it. You see, the problem is spiritual. And so if you want to change the world, if you want to make it safe for your children and grandchildren, if you want to restore decency and morality and the institutions that you trust and believe in, the way that you do it is to put blinders on, brothers and sisters. I know this is not a popular view, but put blinders on and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else is going to happen. Let the nations rage. Let them cause all the trouble that they want. We have a purpose. We have a, 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 a thing that we are sent to, which is to share the good news of the kingdom of God to every town and village. And when we're done with that, we'll go back to where we started and do it all over again until Jesus comes home. That's the way. That is the way. If you really want to know it, Luke has just told you this is the way that you're going to change your society. And you say, well, Luke didn't live in the world I live in. Oh, really? Probably worse, folks. Probably more immoral, more bestial, more barbaric. I mean, they're not turning wild animals loose on Christians yet. But look what happened to that society. It got turned upside down. didn't get turned upside down by people marching. It got turned upside down by kingdom apostling. So, you want to change the world. You want to put things in order. You want to preserve things for your children and your grandchildren. You want to preserve decency, restore morality, all the things we have talked about. Here's my definitive statement. Be the apostler that you have been commissioned and commanded by Jesus Christ to be. Be the apostler that you have been commissioned and commanded by Jesus Christ to be. Because that's the way we change the world. That's the way it's been changed before all throughout the history of the church. So let me just leave you with this kind of confrontational thought. Ask yourself this morning, when was the last time you complained about the way things are? When's the last time you complained about the world that you live in? 
When's the last time you complained about government, about the society that you have? When's the last time that you did that? And then ask yourself, when is the last time you led with your left and you smacked somebody with your right with the gospel? When is the last time that you did the work of kingdom apostling? And if you look at that honestly, I think that you will discover one of the reasons that we are in the mess that we are in. Think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us our plan, our marching papers. You've told us the way, what to do. We don't do it, and we wonder why things are in the mess that they're in. We, we live like the rest of the world. We cover up our righteousness. We are afraid to share the gospel with anyone or even be associated with the church half the time. And yet we complain about the way that the country is going to the dogs or Western civilization is going to the dogs and morality is falling apart, the institutions are imploding, all the things that we talk about all the time and yet we never lead with our left and we never follow it with our right. Lord, make us true kingdom apostles, because we know that it actually started out with fewer people than we have right here against a culture that was even more wicked than ours is. Lord, when revival comes and things are changed this way, there's only one who we can give glory to, and that is you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.